live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Dan Johnson, Brian Lambrecht, Mike Miller, and Paul Vallis. Our program tonight coming to you from our broadcast operation at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago. We're recorded tonight, but this is a historic show, and it is our first live Facebook broadcast. It's being recorded as well for future playback, but again, we're live on Facebook, and again, uh, you'll be able to participate in this program by sending your Facebook questions in, and if you'd like to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O, and of course, you can join us on the World Wide Web at beyondthebeltway.com, but again, live on Facebook now, first time in the history of, of, of our broadcast, and I'll explain a little bit later on. So much has been happening in the world, it always does when we get together, but I want to begin by talking about North Korea. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we've been talking about, you know, the, the, the tremendous effort that, that the Trump administration put together to get this summit, uh, you know, on track. Uh, now the president has, has pulled back from it, at least as of this moment, as we're doing this broadcast. And Mike Miller, uh, economist from DePaul University, um, uh, you're a Republican. You didn't mm-hmm. support Donald Trump. Correct. But... Um, should he get any credit or blame? What, 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 what should he be given right now, he sh- given the state of circumstances? He should be given credit. I don't think, I'm not sure any other president would have gotten us to this point. Uh, no deal is better than a bad deal. You never trust a communist. And strength is better than weakness. And he's showing all those things. Dan Johnson is our card-carrying Democrat. Dan, you, uh, a little you, difference opinion, perhaps? No, actually, no. I think, you know, I was really glad Barack Obama worked hard to make peace with Iran. And I got to give credit. I'm glad he was trying to work hard to make peace with North Korea. And the reunification of the peninsula, that's phenomenal. I hope it continues to happen. Brian Lambert, you're our card-carrying libertarian. Your reaction? I think that it's good that at least dialogue has started in all the different channels. I think it's better for South Korea to take it and run with it where they're at right now than to completely depend on what we're going to do. We're going to have to take a role in this at some point. As for why Trump did the movie did, I I don't know yet. It got me a little bit nervous, but, you know, we'll see where it goes from here. Paul Vallis joins us, our special guest. He's running for mayor of the city of Chicago. We're going to talk about uh, your campaign in just a moment, Paul. But my question to you is the, the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Has the rhetoric of Donald Trump brought us to where we are today for good or bad? Uh, oh, I don't know. I, it really depends on the issue. But you know, on the issue of Korea, Korea has always been very willy in their approach toward things, interacting with presidents. They've never been um, – you know, they, they play by their own rules, so to speak. I think that the – I actually think that they may end up having the summit – uh, eventually, I think they're right. jockeying for positions. But the bottom line is they're not testing missiles anymore, uh, so that's a positive thing. It, so clearly the pressure is being felt. Yeah, we got and, three, three right. Americans back. And, and, and we got three Americans back, and we're much closer. Uh, we're much, we've made much more progress, I think, than we've made in the past, and, and there's something to be said for that. So let's see how things play out. Although, Dan, uh, or, or Mike Miller, although... Uh, we will never know what really triggered uh, the most recent uh, rhetoric uh, from North Korea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was conciliatory today, but for the last couple of days, it's been uh, negative and, and, and sort sure. of inflammatory. Um, allegedly, it's been connected to things that John Bolton said and things that uh, Mike, uh, the vice president, said. And uh, one of those leaders over there referred to the vice president as a political dummy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Did we celebrate too quickly? Did, did we 
saber or saber rattle too much in the last 10 days? I think we did in the sense that we really thought that Kim meant what he said when he said he would denuclearize and he wants a deal. I think there's a chance, however, that the reason they have become so bellicose is because Kim is concerned if he leaves the country, he will not get back in, that there will be a coup while he is gone. And therefore, he can't go to this until he's sure that he's going to have power when he returns. You think that's a, a fear that he really has? I, I mean, I didn't realize he was that tenuous over there. My insight into domestic North Korean politics <laughs> is pretty limited, I gotta admit. <laughs> but uh, never stop you from giving an opinion, however. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you about the wings of the party. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, I clearly it's a big step back. Uh, I thought it was, um, you know, great a couple of weeks ago. This is. Not on that you know, path to peace, so it's, uh, it is really unfortunate that uh, the president's pulled back. I think John Bolton's clearly a warmonger, and that's a, you know, an atrociously bad appointment. But uh, I do think, big picture, the efforts to peace in Korea ought to be applauded. Ryan? I don't think John Bolton's ever stopped rattling a saber. Uh, that's one of his, right, his right. big problems. Uh, with North Korea, I don't think... Kim is as much scared of his own people or his own government as much as he is of China. I think China has a big influence in the area. They don't want to deal with the influx of people that are going to come across their border because there's going to be a lot of, a lot of immigration across and people are starving, hungry, looking for work, looking for escape. They're going to be coming across to China. So I think China has been keeping uh, a tight leash on Korea, tighter than they used to over the last few decades. Well, the president also thinks that because uh, Kim Jong-un has gone for a second visit to China, that it's, the, it's really the president of China mm-hmm. that has forced him to change his, 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 his tone and tune, and I, it seems to me that that would make sense, especially when the United States is trying to negotiate a trade deal with China. Why wouldn't China use its, its well, power at this point? I think w- um, what is different now than has not been the case in the past is China is putting pressure uh, on, on, on the North Koreans to make concessions. You know, I think, you know, the whole they didn't like what Pence said or the whole rhetoric that was, I mean, that was an excuse. To, yes. To, to do further jockeying, to delay the summit. We gave them ammunition exactly. that we should have We gave have given. them ammunition, right. and, and they would have found some other excuse to delay the summit. But, but the bottom line is China is pushing them for the first time. That's why they're not testing missiles again. I mean, it could be wrong. You never know. You could fire right. a missile tomorrow. But I think progress is being made, but that's the way progress is going to be made there. It's, there's never going to be any – they're never going to – identify their goals, have clearly defined goals. They're going to jockey per, for position in, in a very Machiavellian approach. And right. eventually, I think there will be, I think there will be a summit and, 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 and a possibility for some sort of agreement. One other incredibly stupid thing was the minting of this coin, uh, bringing <laughs> Kim Jong-un and, and Donald Trump and putting them on the same celebratory coin. Oh, God. That, that was, you talk about <laughs> celebrating before the game is yeah. over. I mean, that was... That was a ridiculous uh, thing to do. But also, the other thing I'm wondering is that uh, South Korea has done a lot. South Korea is playing an integral role here. And I'm wondering whether Kim Jong-un, who maybe has some desire to, you know, reunify with Korea someday, that part of his position is he doesn't like the way that the president is sort of upstaging the president of Korea. I mean, the president of Korea didn't even know that the president was going to pull out of this summit. Right. It seems to me that we're, we're not treating them maybe with the level of respect that perhaps we should. I mean, the idea that President Trump isn't treating people with respect in the way that they should <laughs> is not foreign, right? This is a, this is a theme. It's we a feature, not, not a bug, right? Yeah, but the North Korean economy is essentially broke. It's on the verge of bankruptcy. And if the, if the sanctions continue, they're probably going to go – they're going to collapse in terms of an economy. Their people are going to starve. 
And uh, clearly what China he wants, uh, uh, I'm not China sure. See, that's the whole point. Part of the reason, it isn't just Trump. It's China has all of a sudden, as they've done all along, they've been the one that would make the difference between success and failure because they continue to sell products to, to North Korea. The rest of the world has stopped dealing with North Korea. North Korea would collapse if China, for a very short period of time, simply removed their, their exports to North Korea. You are watching and listening to Beyond the Beltway from coast to coast and border to border. I'm Bruce Dumont. No calls tonight, but if you want to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. We will roll on from Chicago and talk about school safety and violence in America when we roll on. Goodman Theater presents Having Our Say, the incredible true story of the Delaney sisters, the trailblazers, activists, and best friends who lived past 100. From the Jim Crow South to the Harlem Renaissance, their historic journey is an inspiring story of triumphing over prejudice in times of social unrest. Having Our Say, directed by Chuck Smith at Goodman Theater, May 5th through June 10th. Tickets at GoodmanTheater.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Uh, one of our guests this evening, as I mentioned, is Paul Vallis. He is running for mayor of the city of Chicago. There's a huge field that's running to replace uh, Rahm Emanuel next year in the city of Chicago. Uh, and getting bigger. And getting bigger every day. Uh, once upon a time, he headed the school system uh, in Chicago and also Philadelphia, uh, part of the rebuilding effort in uh, uh, New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina and also a, a lot of effort uh, in Ho- Haiti, which continues today to put that uh, country back together. So a distinguished public career. But again, you're running, you're running for mayor of the city of Chicago right now. And let me ask a question, because if, if, you, if you live in Chicago, you know that Mayor Emanuel has become one of the most vociferous opponents of President Donald Trump. And it's, it's on the uh, immigration issue and the, he, the proudly wears the sanctuary city uh, right. uh, mayor. My question to you is, uh, does it hurt the city that the president is so vociferous in his denunciation of the president, or is that Good politics. Uh, well, uh, good, co- good politics does not necessarily translate into good policy. You have to understand, I think Illinois is 47th or 48th in the nation when it comes to uh, uh, taxes flowing to Washington as opposed to what we're getting back. Maybe this is a race to the bottom. He wants to put us at 50th. But let me point out, let me speak to that issue, because I think for Rahm Emanuel, it's all about politics. Look, he, is, he has now become born again, so to speak, when it comes to uh, immig- immigration reform. Uh, and, uh, and, and yet, when, when he was at the, the DCCC, he was one of the v- v- most vociferous opponents of immigration reform. Basically, what he told candidates was that this was a losing issue. And, and you remember, there, there have been fleeting opportunities to really uh, uh, achieve a compromise on immigration reform during the Bush administration. A lot of that opposition, a lot of that opposition undermined the ability of the Bush White House to get immigration reform because he was a strong advocate. And then, of course, when he was chief of staff, they, they have that famous videotape of him basically, you know, in, in effect, uh, you know, uh, demonstrating his, his opposition or his discouragement of, of uh, of advancing the issue of immigration reform in, in because the, he thought in, it was a political loser. In, in this political climate, though, Paul, is it realistic for a candidate running for mayor of Chicago? Can they be perceived as being soft on Donald Trump? Uh, you know, it's uh, 
That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I'm sure he thinks that bashing Trump is going to gain political points. Look, I, I'm, you know, I oppose Donald Trump. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly critic, critical of, of his actions. But it, if he thinks that, that uh, reversing himself on immigration when he was one of the hawks when it came to uh, opposition to serious immigration reform – uh, uh, that suddenly he's, his bashing of Trump is going to f- forgive him for the high crime rate in the city of Chicago, is going to forgive him for what he's done to the Chicago public schools, uh, the recent reports, of obviously documenting the failure of the school closings to in any way improve the ac- ac- academic performance of the students who moved to other schools. Uh, uh, if that's going to forgive him, uh, if that's going to if that's going to forgive him for his failure to, in his first term, uh, deal aggressively. Uh, with the issue of, uh, of, of pension reform, uh, you know, he, he in, a, in effect, kicked the can down the road. Sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, sorry. That's, That's right. This is just hey, you're, terrible. You're running for mayor. People are going to call I know, you. I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> I thought I had turned that off. That's, That's Mayor Emanuel. He has really <laughs> ticked off. You, you, you right attacked him on, on uh, It's probably <laughs> my wife calling saying, oh, tone it down a little, relax a little, put the coffee down. <laughs> You've had too much coffee. Well, look, the bottom line is clearly, uh, uh, you know, in a nutshell, he is, he is uh, running against Trump because he doesn't want to run on his record. And, and, and I think he sees points to be made by, by declaring Chicago a, a Trump-free zone, does, a Trump-free city. D- does the, the fact as of this moment in time there is no high-visibility Hispanic challenger to him in a field of, what, nine or ten people now, does it does that surprise you or does does it send a signal to you that maybe there's been some deal made between Hispanic leaders and Mayor Emanuel to sit this one out? Um, you know, it, are there are there being deals cut? Uh, you know, I, I'm not concerned about that. It's Chicago. So it's the, it's just the nature of Chicago that there's going to be some backroom deals being cut or backroom politics. I don't care about that. I don't care if there's one Hispanic in the race or a dozen Hispanics or how many African-Americans in the race or how many white candidates in the race. At the end of the day, uh, my, my goal is to run an issue-oriented campaign and to let the, uh, the, uh, my, my proposals to, for dealing with the serious problems and the serious pro- uh, crisis that this uh, city is facing in the area of crime, financial management, uh, equity in the distribution of resources to the, uh, you know, to the uh, west side and the south side, long neglected. Let this, let, let's run an issuing campaign and, and let the uh, let my ideas be, uh, you know, be the be the uh, criteria by which I'm judging. Here's, here's an idea. I want you to, to to elaborate and let the other guests also offer their thoughts and opinions or questions as well. Uh, the, the country has been dealing over the last really couple of years with the, with with the school shootings. The numbers that we've had this year, uh, a lot of effort has gone into what can we do to, to stop stop school shooting. My question to you, as the former head of the public schools in three major urban areas, why is it that these school shootings have tended to take place in smaller cities or towns, not big cities? What's the difference between the way we run our schools? Well, you know. Uh, I think some of it has to do with the fact that in perhaps smaller communities, uh, uh, there, is, there is less of a concern for public safety that there may be in, uh, obviously, some of the larger urban areas, particularly in, in communities where you've seen, uh, where you've seen uh, a lot of crime, so to speak. Uh, look, my approach has always been to uh, 
make sure that all the schools have the public safety resources needed and regardless of where the schools are located, have the type of public safety assets on the ground, have the type of protocols uh, so that uh, in the event that there's a crisis, people know exactly what to do, like the live shooter but drills. Are, and but are, like but are, there, are there metal detectors in all schools now, Paul, and, and, and did you impose them when you were the head of the CPS? Well, I think at the high school level, the metal detectors were installed in the schools long before my arrival because mm-hmm. if you remember, there was a fatality in the Chicago Public Schools right. uh, during the um, – um, many, many years ago – uh, and that, that prompted the city to put police officers in the high schools, uh, two police officers in the high schools, and create the school patrol. And then, of course, they have metal detectors. But uh, my approach is, look, whether we like it or not, uh, uh, we're a gun-infested society, and there's, gun, and there's guns flowing, and people are going to have access to guns. Uh, sure, you, you know, you can get some token or cosmetic uh, reforms when it comes to uh, uh, you know, uh, the automatic weapons or background checks or uh, delays in giving people, uh, uh, you know, their uh, licenses, uh, you know, or for that matter, uh, being more aggressive about getting the guns out of the hands of, of individuals who, have, who may have mental health issues. Much, but the bottom line yeah. is you're going to have the guns and they're out there. So you've got to take the precautions no matter what. Because you've had instances of, of mass shootings in countries where, where guns are literally outlawed. So regardless of what happens, regardless of what happens when it comes to gun control, gun regulation, and I'm a strong supporter of, of, ba- of deep background checks, and I, I'm a strong supporter of gun control. There is no substitute to making sure that you have the security personnel in place in schools and that you have a system, you, that you have a system of, of, um, of, of uh, accessing information within the community uh, about rumors and that things are going on because, you know, so but many but, of these... But, if there, but if, there were, if there were more armed, not teachers, I'm not, I'm not proposing that, right. the president proposes that, but if there were more armed guards in more schools, would that reduce the likelihood of this happening, in your view, in well, your opinion? It would, but you have to do a few other things. First of all, uh, what I discovered in the districts that I've managed is we always set up a, a system 24-7 of reporting so that we could gather intelligence from the community because, you know, in so many of these shootings, the shootings were almost telegraphed, you know. People were talking to other people. There were rumors, you know, the, the big criticism that the FBI didn't respond as if the FBI is going to be able to protect 10,000 school districts across the country. But there was intelligence g- gathering. There was information out there about uh, – and, and because children talk to other children. So before the, you know, before the social media revolution, we had a more traditional – uh, 24-7 hotline reporting. And when I was in Philadelphia, we would get reports that somebody had brought an automatic weapon to score. Some kids buried an Uzi across the street from school. And we would get all sorts of intel about uh, someone who had a weapon or someone who had suicidal tendencies or, or someone who had a serious drug problem that wasn't being addressed. And we were always able to respond to that. And, and I think what you have to do in addition to making sure that you have proper security in the schools and the protocols for dealing with with uh, with emergencies uh, is to uh, is to also create this uh, and you can do it through social media is to create this network so that when uh, individuals hear of something whether it's bullying intimidation somebody with a gun somebody with a serious opioid problem somebody who's suicidal that can be communicated and it can be responded to and if you do that I think the schools will be significantly safer uh, Mike Miller your reaction to uh, the role of the community in trying to stop school shootings and trying to stop 
uh, violence. And again, uh, violence is down in most cities. It's up in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Why, in your opinion? I, boy, you know what? What's I can I can look at data as an economist. I tend to be data oriented. Years ago, when I was a kid, and that's a lot of years ago, there were guns everywhere, and there were even gun clubs at high schools, and people would bring them in their cars, and then after school they would have the, and people didn't get shot. How could you have, if guns caused the problem, how could you have all these guns and there were no problems, and now we have guns and we have problems? To me, the problem is cultural. It's not the guns. Something has happened that people don't value human life. And they're willing, and for some reason, they're willing to go to the, they don't think of the, of the permanence of the actions that they take, that they kill someone. Well, Do you agree if, with that, Dan? No, if you can't, if it might, if you really don't value human life, then you would oppose the raft of 90% supported common sense regulations like making sure people that have mental illness don't get guns. And if you can't fly, then you can't buy a gun. And the 30 other provisions that our continued societal indulgence of dystopian gun nuts in the NRA wow. blocks us hey. from implementing common sense reforms that would save yeah, that's me. I'm evil. Back I'm NRA. In Chicago in a moment. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. First of all, back in Chicago, uh, Paul Vallis, uh, you have been critical, obviously, of Mayor uh, Rahm Emanuel. You're running against him. Uh, Rahm Emanuel has said uh, in a, to a growing number of times in the last couple of years that, uh, you know, he inherited somewhat of a fiscal mess. Uh, you were uh, a member of the Daily Administration. You ran the Chicago Public Schools. You were the budget director of the city of Chicago for a while. Uh, does some of that blame rightfully belong on Rich Daly, and does some of it belong on you because you were the chief bean counter for a portion of that administration? Well, let me point out that I was budget director before cell phones. So, so, okay, so, that's good. So I never had a cell phone problem in those days. Okay. No, but you know. But let me just say, <laughs> I'm going to live that down. Uh, let me just say that you know, when I ran the Chicago, when I was the city budget director in the Chicago Public Schools, right. because we did long-term financial planning, because we saw the budgets as investment documents, and during that period, our enrollment in the schools grew by thirty thousand. I think there's there's now seventy thousand fewer kids in the school system than when I was budget director. And you know, you can grow yourself out of a lot of problems. I mean, the part, a, a large part of the city's problems is the fact that, that it has declining enrollment, uh, and declining enrollment, that has a declining population. Well, let me just interject for a minute, okay, because you, you're, you're, you're going a little far afield of the question I asked. When you were the budget director, right, so and, let me you, ex- and you had the ear of the mayor, right. uh, this, the, Mayor Daley, and, and Mayor Daley before him, and Byrne, and all the mayors we've had, so, with the exception of Mayor Washington, right. 
they rarely said no to anybody. Well, look. Should, the, should Mayor Daley have said no much more frequently than he did? And well, would we be in the mess today if he had done that? After I was gone, you know, I think the mayor can answer for himself from 2001 to, uh, to when, uh, 2011 when Ron became, when, when Ron became uh, mayor. But the bottom line is during my tenure, Daly supported my efforts to do long-term financial planning and to, in effect, kept, keep spending within uh, uh, existing available revenue. So, so let's talk about what we left Chicago with. So when I left as budget director, we had a structurally balanced budget, no borrowing, no kicking the can down the road, no scoop and toss, uh, 13,500 police officers on the street, and we had the type of infrastructure plan that had resurfaced about 70% of the city streets, and the pension systems were, 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 were fully funded. Uh, when I left the Chicago Public Schools, and, and you remember, Bruce, one of the first shows I did was when I uh, was with you was when I... Uh, was uh, appointed CEO of the Chicago Public Schools. We inherited a, a, a school district that had a five-year structural, projected structural deficit of a billion two and declining enrollment, 20 years of declining enrollment. We left. We left a system with $556 million in cash reserves in its operating funds, over a billion in all funds combined, 12 bond rating upgrades, uh, and you don't get bond rating upgrades by kicking the can down the road, a fully funded pension system, 30,000 more students, 78 new school buildings, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and six years of improved test scores. So, so the bottom line is we engaged in, in the type of budgetary management practices that, in effect, transformed budgets into investment vehicles, and the net product was a growing city, a growing school system, increased enrollment, et cetera. And we uh, left the district. I mean, who gets 12 bond rating upgrades? And for the layman out there, bond rating is like going in and getting an MRI to, to mm -hmm. determine what your actual physical health is. I want to I do one more thing, and then, Brian, I'm going to let you jump in. You may have some questions as well. And that is, uh, your successor as the head of CPS was Arne Duncan, went on to become the head of U.S. Education. Right. Last week he said, uh, in response to uh, the lack of, of legislative action at the federal level, he said there should be a national boycott of public schools. What do you think of that idea? Well, great. You know, uh, that may make you feel good, having national boycotts. And, you know, anything you can do to basically galvanize public support, uh, uh, to push people uh, to enact legislation, responsible legislation, uh, uh, is uh, it, it's certainly something that should be encouraged and, and, and applauded. But so you would encourage it? No, no. Well, you know, I, you know, I would, cons uh, you know, I would Some encourage of it's just also just for press. Right. I would encourage protest, and I would encourage people getting out and registering to vote. You know, I, let's make sure that, that the generation that's protesting are all registered to vote. The bottom line, though, is after the protest, after the kids are out of school for a week, and, and you know, and you have working families who are not necessarily going to be able to afford to have their children uh, out of school for a week because they can't have, ba you know, they can't have babysitters. There's no place to, to send their kids, so to speak. A at the end of the day, uh, are your schools going to be any safer? Because you know what's going to happen. They're going to pass. If they pass anything, it'll be kind of cosmetic, limited. Uh, uh, reforms that will, in effect, have no real impact in the community. So there's no substitute. So there's no substitute. There is absolutely no substitute for having a a public safety plan for your schools that ensures that you've got police officers in the school, that that ensures that you have the type of protocol so that you have, if you have a live shooter or, or if you have a risk of having a live shooter, you're taking the appropriate steps. You know where the safe place. You know how to secure your your, your classrooms. And third, having the type of 
uh, uh, information gathering network, which you can do over social media. So, so you're gathering the intelligence that you need to anticipate these events because in so many of these shooting events, the, the shooters telegraphed, the shooters told somebody that stuff was circulating on the Internet. And so you can create a system so that you can gather information so that you can take the appropriate action. Brian, you want to comment on anything? I know you've been quiet for a long time. i got a lot I want to say. Go ahead, uh, jump in. Well, regarding education, and you're talking to a libertarian on this now, uh, you talk about safety or you talk about like educational standards like increasing? Like, well, right now, we're talking about sa- right now we're talking about safety. Okay. Uh, with regards to the schools, and you were talking about you know, uh, getting rid of the public school system, one of the problems that we have as libertarians is that <coughs> the government has a monopoly on it. Now, uh, I'm a little biased on this. My wife, who is currently running for comptroller for the state of Illinois, has a master's degree in accounting, is a CPA homeschooled from kindergarten all the way through 12. Not everybody has that option. She actually grew up living in the mountains, in, in the Santa Clara Mountains in California for a few years. Uh, the way her family structure was, it worked out really well for her. She's done very well for herself. I'm proud of her. Not everybody has that option. Today, currently, she works for a network of charter schools in the city. And the charter schools, that they do very well. They have a great reputation. Who are they funded by? Where does most of that money come from? I'll give you a hint. One of them is named Pritzker, and one of them is named Rauner. So that money does come out there. People are willing to dump that money in to improve these systems. And I think that if you can end the monopoly on the public school system and allow the charter schools, independent schools, to open up and flourish, you're going to get the safety along with the increased standards. And it's going to save people a lot of money, property taxes go down, suddenly people might want to come back to Illinois. Look, you know, I was superintendent in Bridgeport, and Sandy Hook was our uh, neighbor school district. And we had a, Connecticut. That's right, in Connecticut. And, um, and it was Bridgeport, Connecticut, not Bridgeport, Chicago. Yeah. So, but, um, and we had a teacher who actually lost her daughter. Was, daughter was in one of those classrooms. So even the most idyllic community, a community that where there's a complete absence of crime, uh, you know, there are people out there that are dangerous, and if those individuals, for whatever reason, are able to access a weapon, and regardless of what sort of gun control laws you enact, there's, there's going to be millions of weapons circulating in, 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 in our communities. And if they can, they will, there's always a risk that they will get access to a gun. So you've got to take the appropriate precautions. And, and I know charter schools that have police officers in the schools and charter schools that have this 24-7, because I know I've, in my districts uh, there have been charter schools that take the same precautions that traditional schools take because they realize the risk and they realize that you have to take preventive measures. Yeah. I, th- I think Paul is right about manage- from the perspective of managing Managing a school district, you need to have safety mechanisms. But uh, talking about, you know, uh, gun violence can affect a school anywhere. It was 30 years ago that my elementary school, uh, a child was murdered and six other children were shot. Uh, Last Sunday night, 30th yeah, anniversary. Yeah, that's right, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And Dan. Um, mm-hmm. things, I think, are finally starting to change where our laws that tolerate anyone owning a gun and any, uh, essentially anyone purchasing a gun all because some people want to elevate their hobby and their idea that I need to have a stockpile of weapons because of some dystopian future, that attitude is changing, thankfully. I want to I move off of gun control at the moment and go back to a question uh, to you, Paul. Last week it was announced that uh, Chicago's population continues to decline. Does it make any difference to you whether Chicago is the third or fourth largest city in the United States? Well, Practically, what does it mean? I live in Chicago. What do I care if we're fourth instead of third? Well, you know, where you rank doesn't, uh, isn't important. What's important is when a city is not growing, when a city is declining, it impacts 
everyone. Because look, our property values in, 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 in the city of Chicago have, have, are still below the 2008 um, great, great Recession. It's something like double digits, where, where uh, property values, the recovery of property values nationally have been 7 to 8 percent. You know, I mean, that is a reflection of the fact that the city is declining. The city is declining from a population standpoint. The city is declining economically. How do you change it? Yeah. Well, well, you change it by doing a number of things. You, you change it by setting priorities so that budgets are long-term financial plans that, that bring financial stability and predictability to both working families as well as businesses, and that those budgets are investment vehicles. That means you invest in initiatives that are designed to improve uh, public safety. And that means making sure that you not only have enough police officers, but you have the infrastructure, the infrastructure of support within the police department, like enough supervisors, enough training officers, etc., so that you not only have effective policing, but effective accountability. It means that when you, that, that when you allocate your, your economic development resources, you're allocating them in ways so that you're building up and investing in areas that are underperforming. I want to so, I I hear from our economist from DePaul, yeah, the, whether you buy uh, what Paul just said. Yeah, um, I hear what you're saying about numbers, but the numbers that matter, for example, Chicago is 74th out of 75 cities in financial condition. We're the next to the worst. Right. Retiree health care benefit debt, 49th out of 50 cities. 51 public corruption convictions per year since 1976. These are numbers that matter. Here's the problem in terms of why would someone want to leave the city of Chicago? I'm trying to get out myself. Uh, I actually live in the burbs, but I'm trying to get out of Illinois as a whole. Think of what the mayor said when Chick-fil-A wanted to open a store in downtown in, in Chicago. Chick-fil-A has the highest amount of revenue per store of any fast food restaurant. And he said they don't match our, our values, whatever the heck that means. Would you be one who would be willing to at least to let, say, Walmart come in or Chick-fil-A to come in? Or are you going to use your judgment as to who is Chicago and who is not? We'll get that answer when okay. we pause. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Thanks for joining us on this live Facebook edition of Beyond the Beltway. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. First of all, back in Chicago, Paul Vellis, the question that uh, Mike Miller asked you before the break, if you were mayor, uh, would you look at places uh, either like Walmart or specifically Chick-fil-A, where the mayor has said uh, basically they're not really wanted in Chicago, at least Chick-fil-A? Well, you know, I I don't think you should give people litmus tests, you know, particularly when you're talking about chains or national chains that – can create opportunities, uh, economic opportunities. You know, I mean, you're always going to set standards, but I think, you know, I think the mayor, well, look at what they did with Ricketts, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, Mr. Ricketts um, decides to. Cubs owner. Yeah, the, the Cubs owner decides that, that he's going to contribute to Romney's campaign. So he literally declares, he literally delays, he delays the, 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 uh, the Wrigleyville project. The mayor delays the Wrigleyville project for 18 months. Uh, you know, simply because he wanted to impress the president or whatever. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, I, you know, I don't think 
I think you can go overboard at the end of the day. I mean, this isn't like ancient Rome. This isn't Emperor Commodus, you know, basically, you know, uh, d- dispensing wisdom or, or, or sending out uh, uh, Caesarian uh, edicts, so to speak. Paul, at the end of the day, I think you need to, you need to be uh, less, uh, you need to interfere less. Those, th- those listening around the country are, are hearing uh, your articulation and, and, and depth of articulation on a variety of issues because you've been part of the Chicago uh, you know, political scene, uh, you know, your administrative background with Chicago and Philadelphia and uh, Haiti and everything else. I mean, you're, you're a national figure when it comes to education, certainly education administration. Uh, you ran for governor uh, in a primary against Rod Blagojevich, and you lost. Mm-hmm. You ran for the lieutenant governor along with Pat Quinn, and you lost. Mm-hmm. Why is it important for you to be an elected official? Well, I've always felt that I, I, I needed the executive authority to implement things that I feel can be a game changers. Uh, you know, for example, I did a project for uh, uh, U.S. Attorney General Sally Yates, and it was a project designed to revamp education in the um, uh, prison system to, to, to create programs, adult ed and occupational training, so you could, you could significantly reduce recidivism. It was an extraordinary project, an extraordinary person to work for, by the way. Uh, the bottom line is, is uh, you know, um, Trump gets elected, Sessions comes in, dismantles everything that she was attempting to do. And this was an extraordinary, extraordinary initiative. And, uh, and at the time that I was doing uh, that project, uh, you know, I, I brought the same team to look at Illinois and to look at we could do, what we could do at both the state and the local level to implement similar reforms. Because we have seen some extraordinary things being done in states to significantly reduce recidivism. And, and you know, there's... Uh, Different people have different ideas. You know, there's always the give and take. You know, some people have other priorities. The whole idea is, is, is uh, I see solutions to serious problems, and I feel that being in a position of executive authority will give me the means uh, to, in effect, articulate these solutions and to move these solutions forward. So, I, you know, one of the reasons I ran for governor— your, critic, your, your critics will say, Paul, that you really need it for one more thing on your resume, that, that you, you have a distinguished resume, but, you know, next month you're going to be 65 years old. You need it to, to put a cap on your resume. What do you say to those critics? You know, I haven't heard anybody say that yet, but if there are critics out there who believe that, believe me, I wasn't planning on running for mayor at this stage of my life. Uh, at the end of the day, I've always been a public servant, and, and I, I have always uh, gravitated toward challenges. Uh, all the public service jobs I've had have been jobs uh, that involve major turnaround that I've been invited to participate in. Uh, I believe that this city's in trouble. I've, uh, you know, I grew up in this city. I love this city. I've served the city for 12 years, and I think I served the city well and responsibly. So, for me, it's about uh, uh, having the skills and the means to, in effect, uh, address uh, uh, the city's critical problems and and to do it in such a way so that all Chicagoans are benefiting, and just not the, you know, just not the, the few hand, handful of individuals who have been, who have yep. been thriving. Earlier this year, you lost your, your son, your 24-year-old son. It must have been very devastating for you. How did that tragedy affect where you are today, and, and how did that bring you to where you are today? Well, you know, uh, all my boys, and as you know, um, my two older boys were in the service, and they're now policemen, not in Chicago. One's in Wheeling and one's in San Antonio. Uh, and um, all of my boys, including my youngest, um, um, strongly encouraged me to run. You know, and um, and and uh, you know they were probably most supportive, and so I think it clearly there was a period where we had a pause, and 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 to 
not only reassess, but I wanted to make sure that my wife was comfortable too, because she's a very private person, and you know, running for public office can subject you to all sorts of things, and and uh, uh, so. I had to make sure that everybody was comfortable with us continuing in this race. But I'll tell you, it's made me more determined to move forward. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I have two sons. When they joined the military, I didn't encourage them to join. They joined on their own. When my oldest son went to Afghanistan, he made that decision on his own. When my young son went with me to New Orleans and then spent time in Haiti and did his service in Haiti, he did that on his own. He decided to do that. He wanted to do that. So... We've always been a family of public servants, and I just feel that, if anything, the loss of my son has made me even more determined to, uh, to uh, uh, take on this challenge so, so I can offer my services and try to make a difference. It's brought you a, a level of empathy that, that voters could also uh, relate to. You know, when you spend time in New Orleans after Katrina and, 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 and when you go to Haiti like a month after the earthquake uh, in a disaster that you would have thought uh, Port-au-Prince was like, it was like Hiroshima after the bomb, where 175,000 to 225,000 people uh, died in, within seven minutes. Uh, uh, you know, you know um, certainly the loss of my son uh, ha- ha- has helped me understand uh, the critical issues that young people are facing when it comes to drug addictions and, and this hold. You know, because, you know, the, the drug scourge is like the great plague in Europe. It's, it, it's indiscriminate. In, in who it destroys and the families that it suffers. So it, it, it's, it's made me more empathetic, but I think all my experiences combined have given me an empathy that I think I've always had. Paul Vallis wants to be mayor of Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumont. Paul, thanks for being with us. We will continue with our panel and roll on for another full hour when we roll on from Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumont on this Memorial Day weekend. presents Having Our Say, the incredible true story of the Delaney sisters, the trailblazers, activists, and best friends who lived past 100. From the Jim Crow South to the Harlem Renaissance, their historic journey is an inspiring story of triumphing over prejudice in times of social unrest. Having Our Say, directed by Chuck Smith at Goodman Theater, May 5th through June 10th. Tickets at GoodmanTheater.org. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, 
someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. Dumont back on Memorial Day weekend. Thank you very much for joining us from coast to coast and border to border. Good to have you with us tonight. Jeff Holm joins us for this hour of the show. He is with the National uh, Republican Federation, Young Republican Federation. And uh, your job is to get young Republicans involved in the Republican Party. That's correct. Or young people involved in the Republican Party. And to grow chapters in, you know, different counties. We tend to have uh, chapters by county. Um, And so to, you know, kind of colonize, essentially, right, to... (laughs) To, to create new new chapters and new places where we don't have formal Republican parts of the when uh, when you do the assessment of why Donald Trump wins uh, there's not a lot of time spent talking about how well he did with young people where is his popularity with young people based on your friendship and your business right now uh, you know it's kind of a peaks and valleys kind of thing you've got people who are uh, fanatically pro trump and people who are um, you know very very uh, uh, against him, and then you've got people like myself where it's like, okay, I want to praise him when he do, does good things and condemn him when he does bad things. Um, but, you know, I think the younger generations tend to be more sensitive to the way that the media is portraying him in that when ne- the, all they see is negative stuff, they just start to internalize the negative, the negative coverage and, and kind of go with it. Um, and the, there's other people that just... They don't really care. Whatever Trump does, he's right. And and whatever – I mean, even when he changes positions, right. the current position follow, is right. They'll follow him on the position. Exactly. Uh, Brian Lambert joins us. He is uh, head of uh, Libertarians in DuPage County, which is just uh, west of the city of Chicago. Um, is, is Donald Trump better than or worse than you thought he would be when you campaigned against him for your Libertarian candidate? It depends on the issues. For example, we're against the idea of building up a wall, but he hasn't done it. Uh, We're against the idea of, you know, we're we're traditionally anti-war. Barack Obama was, of course, anti-war, but we actually mean that. And Trump has been relatively good. He hasn't really invaded any other countries. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I guess we should be proud of that. We should praise that. Uh, But a lot of the people that support Trump, like Jeff was saying, uh, they're the ones, they're the hardcore people that support everything he does, whether it's good or bad, even if it's the same thing Barack had done uh, several years earlier. Uh, Dan Johnson, you're a card-carrying Democrat. Let me ask you this question. Based on all of the, uh, uh, the, the current controversy involving Spygate, uh, the, the, the questions about the FBI, whether there's going to be a special investigator looking at the investigators, which is something that the president and House Republicans are now talking about, would you acknowledge that after uh, almost a year and a half of, of this drumbeat for investigation as to the role that Russia played in the 2016 election and the way in which the Trump administration and his supporters have fought against that, mm-hmm. would you acknowledge that in the body politic right now the, the, uh, the water is so muddied and so muddied is the word <laughs> – that from a political standpoint, Donald Trump may have won this 
battle for the hearts and minds of people. Um, if I could rephrase your question, has he successfully lied to his base enough times with the same phrase as no collusion, witch hunt, <laughs> whatever, right? whatever right. device he used? Right. So does his is it is it working? Would you acknowledge that it it might be working? I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, but I, I you're think politi- you're I th- politically astute. I think his insistence that he can brazenly lie, and I think we would all acknowledge he is without a doubt the biggest liar in the in the White House our country has ever seen. But to lie on this core issue of the clear what have been twenty five indictments and. Ten people have been convicted None of them related or whatever to it is. Not related to him, though. They're not related to collusion. No, There's no collusion. Like pers- so I think his ability, his brazen ability to continue to tell his base it's a witch hunt and there's no collusion and to lie about spies because it sounds nefarious is successful at keeping his base with him. But does it muddy the waters with the median voter? I object the independent, I, the independent voter. Of independent voter? I don't think so. Mike wow, Miller. That's an interesting. He's lying about spies. I had, at the university, I have interacted with several of my liberal colleagues, and they're telling me, no, you need to wait before you say there were spies. But somehow, when he says he thinks there were spies, it's a lie. He, we don't even know for sure. He what said if you himself, find out, I use the word spy because out, it sounds nefarious. What if That's you what find out that there was a, there was a mole within his, within his administration before any of this FISA stuff, be, and, and, and before any of this thing about Russia collusion and so forth, are you then going to finally accept that maybe the FBI violated – that the Obama administration used the power of the government against the, op- the opponent uh, party? So I think if, you, if you're telling me that it's more likely that Donald Trump is telling the truth or that the – Oh, you know, our, our that isn't what I asked. Telling the truth, that's what you asked. It's no, in this wild hypothetical. Is it possible – that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, run by Republicans for decades, somehow put a mole into Donald Trump's campaign, and the and you're not huge meeting in Trump Tower. What I would be the FBI of I'm the much, op- opposing party. You don't think that this is this is just frightening as hell? No, I can't believe that. I'll that, tell you what. Let's clarify I, something Jeff, here. Yeah, right. Jeff. That, there's no question that the FBI had a human source in the Trump campaign. They've told Whether us. You, what, they've, they've told us that. This is not something that, that Trump yeah, made up. The guy has a name. Clapper is talking about it on CNN. John Brennan's talking about it. Like, these are ex-administration officials, ex-Obama administration officials that have said they used a human source within the Trump campaign. Whether you call them an informant or a spy it's is, is window dressing. It's important, number one, because certainly the president has said, well, I use the word spy because it sounds nefarious, and I like to beat the drum about it. But if, but you, if we're really just arguing about whether we call the person a spy or an informant, I think you're already conceding the point. Here's, no, no, listen. I, let me address the point if directly. One of the, if, one of the concerns, directly. Wow. if one of the concerns during the campaign – is the degree to which Russia or Russians might be involved in trying to uh, uh, involve themselves with the Trump campaign. Let's just say it's from Russia with Trump. It's not the other way around, okay? Let's say that that is out there in the, in the, in the discussions that are out there. And it might be, given you know, you know, the, the Steele dossier and everything else, it might be out there. Is it wrong for the FBI, Mike Miller... Is it wrong for the FBI to investigate whether or not there is any truth to that rumor? And as part of the investigative technique, you might want to get an infiltrator 
or, or someone on the inside, just like any investigation, whether it's the mob or the Ku Klux Klan, you may want to get somebody on the inside who's telling you what's happened. Is, I, isn't that a sort see, of a standard investigative I, technique by the FBI? I want to see the timeline of the administration using a person in the administration. But we're working from the assumption that there was a belief in a collusion between Trump and the Russians. We've only believed that after Hillary Clinton lost. The idea that there no, was... Wait a minute. Wait, wait, a minute. No, wait a minute. No, no. no. Why on. could there she not have... Why could there not, why because could he there, is. Why could there not have been Russian interaction with the Hillary Clinton campaign or with the Jill Stein campaign. Do Why they, would not the FBI I'll concede go on that look second all one. three of those? I will concede on that second one of because course, she was at was that none. table. But there was none. Oh, come on. I, mean, why, I don't know still why. Still allowing. Dan, they Dan, still Dan. don't seem to care Dan, that the government ahead. is using the power of the FBI against its own people. I'll tell you the government this that is, I'm really concerned about is Vladimir Putin trying oh. to influence our elections, which clearly they were, partially since, through your organization, which is now clear they've accepted Russian rubles in order to influence the 2016 election. What? So, yeah, absolutely. There's a problem with oligarchs trying to influence our democracy, and the idea that Donald Trump isn't part of their organization in the sense that he's likely financed by the Russian oligarchs and clearly with WikiLeaks clearly clearly with WikiLeaks oh what's calling on pause to back Shirley don't go away don't touch it's that right down. Out there. this spring Goodman Theater presents having our say the incredible true story of the Delaney sisters the trailblazers activists and best friends who lived past 100 from the Jim Crow South to the Harlem Renaissance, their historic journey is an inspiring story of triumphing over prejudice in times of social unrest. Having Our Say, directed by Chuck Smith at Goodman Theater, May 5th through June 10th. Tickets at GoodmanTheater.org. All right, come on back. Brian Lambert, libertarian. Here it is. Just a couple Speak. things, just a couple things of jumping on what was going on before. First of all, I think it's cute that the left has had a love affair with Russia for decades, yep. up until the moment when suddenly they didn't anymore. Uh, to talk about witch hunts going on with Trump, uh, the last witch hunt I heard was about Hillary's server from the FBI. Uh, WikiLeaks was Bush's nightmare before they were Hillary's. One of the things I like about Julian Assange is he's all about putting information out there yeah. and letting everybody tear each other to shreds, regardless of who sided on. It's like the party, the party in power. Power uh, does not like the filibuster up until the moment when they're out of power, and then it must be the constitutionally defended right that has to be held onto, and then it goes back and forth. You see that happen. As for as for Russia interfering uh, in American elections, I think the U.S. has interfered in enough other elections mm-hmm. for decades across the con- across the planet. It's one of the Including reasons the Middle East is a mess. The Obama administration tried to get um, Net- Netanyahu's opponent to win. Actually, that's yeah. true. They true. They yeah. did work on behalf of that in Israel. And Ted Kennedy actually talked to the leader of the Soviet Union to ask him, "Will you please help us try to stop Ronald Reagan in the next election?" So do you so guys have I a think problem a- with Vladimir Putin trying to influence? R two thousand six. Yes, like do, yes. Sure. Sure. Do you have a problem with it? Yes, sure. I don't. I don't. I don't. You don't. No. 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 I do have a problem with yeah, it. I don't. I, I. I do. I do not like the idea that the Russians. Uh, tried to influence our election. I don't like sure. it. I don't like it to the extent that uh, they were involved in a propaganda campaign, which the, many of these indictments are about, yep. you know, the bots and all the phony stuff that's out there. I don't like that. What, what, what I'm upset about as an American, because we are allegedly the greatest nation on earth, why did not Barack Obama, using the power and influence of his intelligence community and all of his friends in Silicon Valley, why did he not protect us in the cyber war 
that was going on. Why did he knew about it? He made it. He knew about it and didn't didn't say anything about it. I'll tell you why. And I think it was in retrospect, it was a miscalculation. Absolutely, thank you, Mitch McConnell. Then Mitch and, Bo- and I have and I have said and I have said that Mitch McConnell is wrong. Yes. But the point is, sometimes if you're the leader of the, you know, I, I'll tell you one thing. Yeah, I think you're right. If, if the shoe was on the other foot, yeah, and 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 Donald Trump was the guy, and and his leaders in Congress were saying one thing, and he believed in his heart the other, I think Donald Trump would have made a different decision than Barack Obama. You're probably Barack right. Obama made the wrong decision. He have he has people even in his own as an administration acknowledge that. Donna Brazil has acknowledged that. Yeah. He was asleep at the switch. Well, not, no, not no, only it was, was in not, a, it was a decision. It was a decision was a to decision. defer to McConnell. It was a decision. He was asleep at the switch. He was asleep at the switch with the attack on Sony. He did. He has not. He did not protect the cybersecurity of the United States when he was president of the United States. And one of the derivatives of that, one of the derivatives of that softness on cyber protection was what happened in, in, in this 2016 election. That's part of it. Part well, of hold on. It. It, it. That's a it little unfair because what, what his okay, decision was is that, look, this is an attack on our institutions, and we are looking for a bipartisan response to say clearly Russia in oligarch is trying to influence our and elections. Why is, what he go should on not television. Yes. But, so, so to, to your point, the problem is Trump. that Mitch, and, and let's put blame on Mitch McConnell's shoulders, who intentionally said, I will not participate in this bipartisan, you know, patriotic statement. Why? Because it's helping my party. Barack Obama should not have deferred to Mitch McConnell's partisan interest in allowing. Right. Was but, there, but, but let's but, remember, but but had Mitch point. McConnell but said, I'll be patriot over my party, Here's my point. Here's my point. Yes. That, to me, indicates weakness. He's the president of the United States. He can go on national television at any time. He could have gone on national television. He could have explained what was going on based on what he's heard from his, from his well, intelligence let me, community. Let me finish. Yep. He, could have, he could have laid the, the, the blame right at Mitch McConnell's uh, you know, doorstep, and the American people would have known. The American people should have known what was going on. They didn't. Barack Obama kept them in the dark. Well, let me ask For you whatever this. political reason, he made a mistake. If you're period. hearing Donald Trump, the, the birther conspiracy, from the start, who traffics in, started in the Hillary you, campaign? This by is a the fair way. question. Mm-hmm. This is a fair question. <laughs> okay. If Barack Obama is facing a political uh, force that traffics in conspiracies, traffics in lies, even today saying it's the Obama FBI that spied on Donald Trump, which is absurd on its face. If that's what he's facing, you know, don't you what? think? Was, yeah, it's was there the somebody FBI, else president right? before right? Trump? No, 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 no. The no, whole no. idea that it's not it's is it not, independent it's, it's law not, enforcement. It is not, not the FBI. It is the bad apples at the FBI. Many of those bad apples have footprints that go right back to uh, to a love affair with Hillary Clinton. Of course. Whether it's Peter Scorch or, or so anybody else. So don't you think else? there would be an immense blowback from Donald Trump if Barack Obama took the position, which you and I agree he should have done? Don't you think it's well, a look at you would. trying to of tip course, the scales? Of course, of course. So, but you know what? He's the president of the United States. So shouldn't he, Mitch McConnell should have stood up for our country knowing that would have no, happened? And given no, no. Bar- I think that Barack Obama should have called him out publicly. And, and, and we would not be arguing about this. The, the point is, Barack Obama was supposed to protect the cybersecurity of the United States, and he did not do it. 
Period. To def- End of story. To period. Unfortunately, defer to a partisan Mitch McConnell who. You've made the point ten times. Well, I have acknowledged true. the point ten times. So you're right. Mitch McConnell was a bad guy here. My, you. I want That's you to acknowledge my point. I the agree leadership, with you at the, start. the leader of the free world, didn't act like the leader of the free world or the fr- fr- United States. And I appreciate you acknowledging okay, the blowback so he would have faced too. On the Mueller investigation, if this is truly an, a counterintelligence investigation, which is what it's billed as, right? How go after the you know, what did the Russians do and when did they do it? Then, you know, I think a lot of people are in favor of it, right? Um, I personally, if it were a counterintelligence investigation, totally in favor of it. If it's a witch hunt that is, you know, in the Soviet style of find me the man, I'll find you the crime, which it sometimes seems like. Like when? Um, so, like, for example, Mueller p- publishes this list of questions that he wants, m- many of which he has no business knowing like because what? he has, like, what the president's thoughts were at a certain yeah. point in time. The, the, About with the Russians? It, it, but what his thought process when was. He wrote his a, Twitter a, and stuff like a that. Prosecu- a, a member of the, ju- the Justice Department who is subordinate to the executive has no business asking those questions, right? Why? But so, so even so, Why? because they're an employee. So it's independent Plus law he's enforcement. An American. He's so hold on, to have his own but thoughts. so so. But it goes um, to motive. President Trump's President Trump <laughs> said goes to intent. Said okay, we'll answer your questions. We'd like to give them in writing, and and Mueller said no. Okay, so the question is, why would he not take the answers to the questions in writing? And to go back to some of the other things that are coming out of this, where the only indictments are here are procedural ones about lying to the FBI, which is okay. I said something to the FBI. They call me back six months later. I said something slightly what different, about all those and now and now they've got me. They've got me dead to rights. The troll farm that's been indicted. There's like what a dozen Russian nationals that have been indicted. For yeah, but so here's clearly the, violating campaign so finance for, laws. You know, so what I want to know, what, what not, I want to know, gentlemen, not, here's what I want to know. Trump. Here's what I want to know. What are we doing now? What are we doing now to protect the ballot in 2018? There are two th- I, yes. I, got, I can this speak to that. This is one of your areas of expertise. It is, in fact. Thankfully, I think it was uh, – I'm going to uh, forget the Republican. I apologize. I think it's Senator Thume and Senator Klobuchar. They put $400 million into the federal budget, which was great, exclusively for cybersecurity for elections. Uh, it's going to be hard to spend that money uh, in time. But that was a bipartisan. That was great. But you know what is a real problem, which I hope you guys can acknowledge? Trump just uh, left the post of the chief cybersecurity post vacant. Bad. Really bad. Mm -hmm. Really bad. Every one of Trump's nominees gets dragged through the mud, and the Democrats drag their feet on all of this. So I'd be— need Senate confirmation. Okay, so if it's one that doesn't need Senate confirmation, I'd be interested in in learning— Look it up. It's bad. Just like he's not spending the money. He's not enforcing the sanctions, right? He's he's not doing it. It's bad. It's a problem. One other thing that that we've talked about on this program a lot, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and that is— that uh, before this election, before the presidential election, there were Republicans and Democrats in both houses. Uh, you had liberal and you had conservative uh, activist groups that were working on criminal justice reform. It looked like it was sailing along, and then the campaign came, and everybody started to throw barbs back and forth, and it basically went on hold. Well, last week, again, we have this is a coalition, and there's, there's conservative groups. There's, there's a, a, a group called the Right on Crime. Yeah. We had Mark Levin from that organization on a few weeks ago. Okay. Last week, the House of Representatives, 309 to 25, there was consensus, bipartisan consensus, for, for uh, prison reform, criminal justice reform, primarily uh, uh, prison reform, uh, reducing recidivism, 
adding more education, giving an opportunity for those that have committed a crime, done their time, and, and, and making, a, making it life better for them on the way out. The leader of this effort is Jared Kushner. He's the point man. He's had numerous conversations at the White House. He has the ear of the president. And, and he is in debate with Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions is the tough-on-crime guy. But in this particular battle, and again, it's now going to go to the Senate for a battle, but this is one example of an issue that can be resolved if people would, would, would get together on it. This seems to be something that, that, that can be done, and, and, and the question is whether or not the, the political hard right is going to use their influence with the president to try to scuttle this because uh, they don't want the president weighing in on sentence reform which is also an integral part of the bigger, broader issue. Jeff? I, I don't know that, that, I mean, when you refer to the hard right here, are we talking like Sessions type? Talking or are we Sessions. talking Are we talking like diehard Trump supporters? I'm talking about Sessions because I don't think, I don't, I would not put, I, die, I yeah, don't I put diehard Trump res, uh, people right. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a moral box. Sure. I mean, I would agree that Sessions is a lock em up kind of conservative um, and and there is a potential threat there. I just don't know how much of a mass uh, audience Sessions has anymore as opposed to um, either the um, some of the other uh, more center-right coalition from Congress. And if Trump says he wants it, Sessions isn't, doesn't have any special sway with his That's base. That's what I would think. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to make a prediction. We will all recall that when Jeff Sessions was nominated, the first cabinet position nominated, you remember how the Democrats and you remember how the national media all lined up about what a horrible guy Jeff Sessions was. It wasn't unlike the way that some people lined up when James Comey was running the FBI, uh, deciding uh, not to indict Hillary Clinton. The minute that Sessions is forced out, and maybe he will be forced out, you watch the national media. Suddenly they're going to gather around this guy and make him a hero. This strange new... Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at BrianSellsTheDesert.com. Back in Chicago, we were talking about uh, Jeff Sessions, and we were talking about Jeff Sessions and also uh, uh, the uh, the difference of opinion that may be existing in the White House between he and Jared Kushner, who's been leading uh, the effort for this first step legislation. That's the legislation that passed 309 to 25 last year, or last week, rather. And again, you've got a situation where, uh, you know, the, the, the son-in-law, I think, has more of the ear of the president than the attorney general. The president has already expressed his concern and, and how upset he is 
with the Attorney General for recusing himself in the Russia investigation. He's also, you know, bringing him over and Ron Rosenstein over uh, periodically to, to, to vent with them. Uh, and there is a difference of opinion. Uh, Jeff Sessions is the hard-nosed guy. He's certainly Mr. Hard-nosed when it comes to illegal, you know, enforcing the illegal or the immigration laws. And so I think from a, from a political standpoint, he may be giving uh, Jeff Sessions sort of the leash to do what needs to be done in cracking down on illegal immigration, and yet the other side of Trump within the White House is Jared Kushner, who's basically saying to those who are incarcerated, uh, we're, going to, we're going to treat you in a way that is a bipartisan way that makes common sense and good public policy. But I think that's a battle. You know, I don't think he's going to go one way or the other because he doesn't want to be perceived as soft on crime. And as long as he's talking tough about illegal immigration, he will not be perceived as soft on crime. Dan? I, I think, you know, good for Jared Kushner for doing the right thing. But can we at least acknowledge it feels a little North Korean to talk about, well, the president's son-in-law is probably going to win that palace intrigue battle against the attorney general. I mean, it, it's just a constant reminder just how regime-ish Donald Trump is to have his, his children and – uh, children-in-law serving Why not have someone close to you that you absolutely trust? Yeah, What's yeah, wrong with Bill that? Clinton, oh, it's, it's Kim, that's what the Kim or, brothers you know, Bobby, does until they, a, until they had an <laughs> uncle, and like boom, that. the uncle was out. I, I don't... Just being I, a relative doesn't save you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Look, I, I think it's very dear leader. I, I think the whole idea of, like, your children or your, your, your advisors and have official government capacities. Ivanka sitting in as, a, you know, a representative of a country and trade agreements. I think that's... Especially when they're running businesses is wrong what do you think brian this isn't the first time that we've had people that are unqualified you know just put in a position because of family or friends or who they know this is chicago that we're broadcasting from <laughs> you think jared kushner is, is unqualified no I mean, um i think uh, depending on the things that, he, that, he, that he's tackling uh, to get back to the to the bill that you were talking about last week there was something in there that i thought was pretty specific uh i believe that bill had something in there that was making it a federal crime a federal crime to assault a police officer and I thought, well, there's already state laws on this. There's city laws. There's all kinds of laws. It was a hate crime, wasn't it? It, 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 was, it was the same thought process of a hate crime. It wasn't labeled a hate but, crime. But not, that was not in the legislation. The legislation I was referring to was really a reentry. It was, it was a prison reform reentry thing. It had nothing to do with sentencing for anybody. Okay, I that, thought that, that, that was— that, Well, that, that might be going through Congress as well, but— it's not this. It bill. sounded like the same the same vote total. And I thought that was the one, but to me, it just seems like it's it's overreach again coming out from what Sessions is doing between yep. you know immigration. Uh, I guess we should say if you guys know what happened in St. Charles uh, this week here, the, the suburb of St. Charles, and what happened, uh, ICE came into town and went and cracked down on some restaurants, and everybody had to scatter, and nobody in St. Charles knew what was going on. The police officers, the the the, the, the um. The trustees, nobody had any idea what was going on, but immigration came in there, and a bunch of restaurants had to shut down because their entire workforce fled because they were, they were scared by that. Is that good or bad? I think that's bad. Horrible. Why? Because I think all the uh, – are we talking about immigration? I want to know well, why you, you think that's bad. I think it's bad because I think a lot of the problems that we have with immigration in this country aren't really problems with immigration. I think there are other problems. For example, people want to talk about immigration reform. Uh, people want to talk about welfare that, that gets abused. Okay, well, that's welfare reform. People want to talk about the criminal justice system where people aren't getting charged with the crimes they're committing because they fall into a certain category. Well, that's criminal justice reform. You want to talk about the gangs. We just had the president call MS-13 animals. Well, you've got the gang crime. That's, uh, you know, that, that, that's drug reform. All the issues that people want to tie into immigration aren't really immigration. 
immigration problems. There are all these other things that people want to put off or avoid but or not talk you, about. But if you uh, peel away that onion that you've just described, then you know, criminal justice reform has as many, many tentacles as you have articulated. When it comes right down, if, if you bring it down to the bottom, isn't it, there's, there's a law. <clears throat> you either enforce the law or you don't. It's, mm-hmm. it's about law-breaking. And whether, regardless of where you're from or what you did, if what you did was, is against the law, mm-hmm. then you should be arrested, we, charged, we, and punished if found guilty of that. Well, do, we, you, do you not agree with that? No, we have a term in libertarians. We call it uh, um, a victimless crime. If there's no actual victim, then there's no actual crime that's taking place. And I, but, our government has a bunch of ridiculous laws on the books that they go and enforce. There's so, a woman in Elmhurst right now that has the village going after her because she built a hoop house to grow vegetables to keep them warm in the winter, and this has been causing havoc for two and a half years. This is the most ridiculous thing that we're okay. doing. This so yeah, no victim so here. Let, me, let me just say generally, I'm in favor of, of immigration, legal immigration. Through the okay. front door. Yeah, right, exactly right. Legal immigration, right? You've got no problems with that. I want, I want people to come here who want to be Americans. It's do you think right. the laws simple. on the books make sense? Do you think they're I rational? Think, do you think that I they're think, helpful for anybody? I think that the laws as currently constituted are messed up, right? Hey, I think thank that you. Uh, country-specific quotas and all that kind of stuff don't really make a ton of sense. I think chain migration doesn't make a ton of sense, right? But that doesn't make illegal immigration less illegal it's still not proper just because to say it's not a victimless crime is actually wrong because illegal immigration thrives on identity theft right because in order Mm -hmm. to to be in the country there's social security numbers that get stolen Mm -hmm. there's there's other documents sensitive documents that get stolen from people and that takes years sometimes crimes that otherwise would not happen if those laws weren't on the books just because just because it's a law doesn't make it good slavery was the law segregation was the law you went from this is a victimless crime to oh well it's a lesser it's a lesser crime because it's let me brian let me answer this question if someone comes into the country uh, engages someone to give them a, a, a phony ID, mm-hmm. so there, there's there's uh, you know theft of of, of identity. Maybe. Then that person, or maybe, or for the sake of this question, sure. they then go to a, a state facility and uh, they get welfare in That's the state of California. Uh, their kids go to a school and don't pay their taxes for that. Is that a crime? Is if 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 someone is getting something. Using the, the emergency room? I mean, using there's, and, there's and, and, all and sorts of public <clears throat> services. Those are, all of those things are – I don't think those are victimless – No, those are crimes that will go away once you <clears> clean <throat> up the immigration system, make it easier for people to come and do it more legally. I mean, how hard is it in, sometimes in the state to get a permit to do something, to do work on your house? We make things so ridiculous that you end up breaking the That's law true. just to get basic I, things done. I agree with that. Dan Johnson. I mean, just two things. Keep in mind, mo- the undocumented – do pay taxes that fake social security numbers means they do contribute and never draw from it. So they are a net benefit. Just social security, that, social security okay. surviving wow. because of benefit? it. And the other one. A net benefit. How net do we benefit, uh, have yeah. you ever Lots had your of studies ID have shown or, absolutely. Oh, yeah, like. Sure, if they're stealing somebody's identity, that's a problem. Have you had they're your paying taxes, stolen? and it's going into Social Security. They They've are stolen a Social Security number. Or a fake one. Like, they just make them up, too. They just make up. Off and they can't collect them. Have you but had, the, uh, to the point on ICE, the majority Dan, of them can't the collect them. Back to Dan. Back to Dan. I think we, uh, for on behalf of, I hope it's more of a bipartisan response that we start reining in ICE. Because the reason why restaurants shut down is that a lot of legal permanent residents live in fear of ICE because of mm. the incredible mistakes they made, the cruelty they show. It was just demonstrated they've lost 1,500 children 
Children have been lost from migrants fleeing violence in Central America, horrific conditions, trying to come to a better world, and they've okay, separated so children from parents. To be so here's, here's, ICE, here's, so ICE, which is a relatively new agency, right? really needs to be reined in. So 1,500 um, minors uh, didn't show up to their court dates, right? And that's what constitutes lost. So if, if they arrest a family that is crossing, a border, crossing the border illegally, are they, are, is your position here that they should detain the kids as well and put the the kids in prison as well as the adults because the reason that the 1500 kids didn't show up to the many of them is that they were put in in uh the care of guardians rather than being detained so you're saying you would rather them be detained i'm happy to be corrected on what i understood those 1500 children to be lost by and i hope it's a better story than what i understand and if if what you're saying is is that it's really not as bad as it's been made out to be well, I'm happy to it's hear Dan that. Is, well, is any, Dan, never, could, no, no chance the press but would I'm happy Dan, is any, oh, is any resp- does any responsibility go to the parents, whether they're from Guatemala or, or Mexico, wherever, that try to get into the United States with the knowledge, or at least the perceived knowledge, that if you try to do this, you and your family are going to go to jail or be separated? Is there any responsibility that a parent receiving that information would say, you know what, this is too much of a risk. I can't do this. Yes, however, yes, however, if we were in Guatemala and we were facing that, that violence that they faced, I think many of us would make the identical choice. Absolutely. But our law Absolutely. does not yeah, allow for yeah. economic refugees. Our law allows for political refugees. And so, and now what you, so what you have to do is change the law. But you see, you, you go after ICE as though they're some kinds of monsters. They're, in, they're, they're simply carrying out the laws as, as passed written. by Congress. And you just go back a few years, not that <clears> many and look up statements by Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and I others on seen. illegal immigrants. And even go back, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the grapes uh, activist, the, uh, Cesar uh, Chavez. Cesar yeah. Chavez. Listen to what he had to say about illegal immigration. He supported border it, control. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely but the don't case. Don't we all have this, like, like just broader. I, 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 don't, don't we all understand. have a responsibility to try to spend more of our treasure to make Central American countries that are facing such horrific conditions, where any of us would Come, make the same choice, are you the Central front America great again? door. <laughs> right. I don't Look, want to send them anywhere. But our laws don't permit it. Why can't Mexico? Why can't Mexico? Where do you, where do you, say, no, where do you draw the line? Right. I mean, where do you okay. draw the line? Yeah, There's a lot of checkpoints. South of Mexico. Yeah. America is the greatest yeah. country in the world. I'm, I won the lottery by being born here. I completely understand that. Right. We all did. Right. But. Do we have a responsibility to the other 160 countries to make sure that they're just as good as America? As best as we can. We do have that responsibility. Wow. I'm not saying to them. We won the lottery. I'm saying, I'm saying is people. I want you to put that on the Democratic platform for 2020. <laughs> I'm Bru- and 2018. I'm Bruce Dubon. Back shortly from right Chicago. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Where's my back in Chicago? 
Thank you very much. Uh, wherever you are this evening, it's Memorial Day weekend. We hope that uh, whether you are uh, home or away, uh, that you're enjoying the broadcast this evening. And uh, we'll uh, take time tomorrow at uh, 11 o'clock and uh, uh, offer your thoughts and prayers and take a moment of silence for the men and women who've died in uh, in defense of this country. Memorial Day is uh, one of those uh, one of those holidays that we sometimes forget the real true meaning of, but I think uh, at least I would say probably in the last five or six years more and more people are are really uh, remembering what uh, tomorrow is all about it's it 's more than just barbecue and a checkered tablecloth and pe- uh, beer and, and pretzels but again, thank you very much for sharing part of your memorial day weekend uh, here um, Dan Johnson, uh, you want to replace uh, Donald Trump as president, big yes. time. You got to wait a couple of years. Bigly, bigly, bigly. You want to do that? Huge. And we've talked <laughs> about whether or not there's a candidate out there that's going to uh, that's going to rally the troops. And uh, you were a Bernie Sanders supporter. We should mention for those listening around the country. Uh, I offered a suggestion to someone this afternoon, and I want to get your thought. Yeah. Since uh, uh, the prosecution of Donald Trump, or some would say the persecution of Donald Trump, (laughs) uh, by Democrats and by Adam Schiff, who's become uh, one of the voices and faces of the Democratic Party, what would you think of drafting Adam Schiff for president of the United States since really your goal uh, this year is going to be to try to get a Democratic House uh, and Senate good. that Looking would good. impeach him. Um, why don't, why don't, since that's what you really want, why don't you just, don't sugarcoat it, that's what you want, and why don't you and other progressives get around, get Adam Schiff, he's, he's got good recognition now, make him your guy. Let, it, let him persecute and prosecute the case against Donald Trump for the next two years as the candidate of the Democratic Party. Why don't you do it? Because it cuts against the whole notion of independent law enforcement, which is that norm that Democrats are trying to uphold, which is why Barack Obama, to partisans dis, you know, discussed, nominated Republican uh, you know, folks to run the FBI and run the CIA, because the idea is just like we elect an attorney general separately in most states. Dan, you you're, want giving, you're, giving me a, you're giving me a little BS here. I'm asking a political question. You're, you're a politician. <laughs> On the political question. Yeah. On the politics. You need, you need a candidate. At the moment, he is the oh, face no and voice. I know, but he is the face and voice of the Democratic Party well, right, right now. For, straight up Why political you just, if I want. Because yeah. you don't need to run for president to continue to be the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. Like, he's got the platform now. There's no need to run for president and go to Iowa and New Hampshire for He would that. not be a good president then. I mean, look, I, I don't think he'd be a very compelling candidate. I think uh, my my take is um, I think watch out for Kamala Harris. I think her um, – clearly there's a movement to recognize that black women have been central to the Democratic Party for decades and have been underrepresented as candidates. She's uh, going to have served in the Senate about the same time as Barack Obama, maybe a couple years more, not much. Maybe – I think only four years actually. Um Super intelligent, really qualified. And here's the thing where Jeff Weaver... most attractive attorney general in the United States, according to Barack Obama. That's that's also true. He did say that. But you know how Jeff Weaver, who was uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, got out a book this week called How We Won or something like that? It's because the Bernie Sanders platform, which the Democratic Party platform has been extraordinarily progressive, that's largely mainstream Democratic thought these days. Which is great for the Republicans. Oh, man. I tell you... 
I had more people nod their head and say, don't you think college should be free? Absolutely. Don't you think health insurance, health care should be free? Yeah, you know why? Because that makes me more sure, free. Because government and, and made it expensive in the those, first place. And, and in, there's, and there's, there's polling that totally yeah. supports that, right? And then when yes. you ask them, would you, would you want your taxes to go up to get those benefits? They go, no. So, yes, absolutely. People want free things. I mean, Santa Claus, it's, it's amazing. Oh, my right? gosh. Like but, Norway. But, but nobody wants the to actually. The rest of Western democracies. Okay. We, but, we have bad policies. We make bad decisions to bankrupt people here because they can't pay for their medical bills. That's dumb. We have bad policies to have people be in debt because they want to go to college. That's dumb. Yeah, okay. So you Santa give up. Santa stupid so and expensive. Here's, so here's one of the things about giving up the, uh, the freedom to, to – to, uh, choose where you get your health care is the case of Charlie Gard in in the National Health Service, where they literally would not let the the parents take the kid to a hospital that said they would treat him for no charge, and they made him sit there and die. So we'll Same have thing a, with we'll Alfie have the Charlie Allen. Gard provision to make sure everybody gets Medicare. Because if everybody gets Medicare, he, you don't have had, a Charlie Gard. He problem. had Medicare. The doctors Andrew. decided that he should die. You so have, we won't have that provision to have everybody having Medicare. In like the Miller. allocation of a scarce resource, you must allocate either by price or by quantity. It, you have to st- simply allocate. The idea that we can have free something and therefore we'll all have it, is preposterous. Maybe there are only so have, many maybe doctors. Maybe we won't have insurance, health insurance a, company skyscrapers anymore. I've got no a, I, I, want to, I want to ask Brian a political question. Uh-oh. Is it the goal of the libertarians, at least you're speaking for those at least in DuPage County, my question, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a national question, though. Is it the goal of the libertarians to, be a, to continue to be a spoiler in American political elections for the next <laughs> two or three terms? Hashtag Cash Jackson. I think that all the sp- I think all the spoiling keeps coming out from the broken two-party system. Uh, we don't want to be spoilers. We want to make change. Here in Illinois, and I should explain this because this is a national audience, there are a lot of states that have terrible ballot access laws. So in Illinois, if you want to run for statewide office, you need 5,000 signatures. Anybody else who wants to run Green Party, Constitution Party, Libertarian, or even Independent needs 25,000. That's how they keep people off the ballot. And this goes all the way down the ticket. It is near impossible to get an independent person to run for county board or to run for state rep or state senate because the signature requirement is way too high. There are Democrats and Republicans that need 1,500 signatures, and then we're being asked for 22,000 to run for a sheriff in Cook County. So it's not, it's not based on the party. It's based on what the party pulled in the last polling, right? No, it's so not. If they get less no, it's than, not. Not in Illinois. Get, if you're not in Illinois. Look it up. If they get less than 5%, that's when you get the, the higher you don't, requirement. No, you don't, well, yes, because you're not. Gentlemen, cash, thanks very much for being with status. us. I'm Bruce Dumoner. Thanks to Fritz Goldman and Dan Dorfman and Sam Greenberg. Have a wonderful Memorial Day, and thank you for joining us for this special edition. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago.
This spring, Goodman Theater presents Having Our Say, the incredible true story of the Delaney sisters, the trailblazers, activists, and best friends who lived past 100. From the Jim Crow South to the Harlem Renaissance, their historic journey is an inspiring story of triumphing over prejudice in times of social unrest. Having Our Say, directed by Chuck Smith at Goodman Theater, May 5th through June 10th. Tickets at GoodmanTheater.org. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. <laughs> 